Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Keith Hess. He's an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Apologetics at Oklahoma Baptist University. Today we're going to be talking about God and the question of why did God create the world and Jordan Wessling's view about divine love and all this fun stuff. Super excited for today. As always, this podcast is brought to you by you guys. So if you value what we do, uh, consider supporting at patreon.com slash adhereinapologetics. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month and just any support would be huge. But Dr. Hess, Keith, welcome. How are you doing today? Doing well. Yeah. How about you? I'm good. I'm super excited for today. And it's going to be an interesting topic. Like, there's always this question that was on the back of my mind as a kid where I was like, why on earth would like God create this world? Right. Uh, we're going to kind of examine that a little bit today. So that's going to be a lot of fun. So I'm excited. Cool. So maybe just like to start off, Keith, it's your first time on the show. Do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do and kind of like your story? Yeah, sure. How, like what version do you want? Two minute, five minute? <laughs> up to you. We got an hour. So whatever you say. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I grew up in a, a Christian home. And I, I also remember thinking about that question. Why did God create us? And in fact, someone asked me once. I don't know how old. I must have been in high school. And I, I was stumped. I just didn't know. Uh, and then I went to college, uh, the master's university with, uh, where John MacArthur was a president at the time. And I got a degree in biblical studies. And there I learned that God created for his own glory. Right. And so then I took that. Uh, well, that's the that's the answer right there. You know, mm-hmm. um, and in the course of like going to the master's university, I, I got interested in philosophy. I, I, I realized I really love to learn and asking these big questions. And so I went over to uh, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University to study with J.P. Moreland primarily, and I enjoyed uh, meeting and working with the other professors as well, um, and got a degree there in philosophy of religion at the seminary, and moved on to graduate studies, at, further graduate studies at UC Santa Barbara in California, uh, where I got my PhD in philosophy. And I didn't study philosophy of religion as my primary focus in graduate school or in at, U, at UC Santa Barbara because I received some advice that, you know, it's very difficult to get a job if you, your focus is philosophy of religion. So I thought, well, I could study something relevant to philosophy of religion, like a, a tool for my tool belt. And then after I get a job, use that tool and other tools to go at philosophy of religion. So that's kind of the strategy. That's where it kind of worked out. Uh, and uh, here I am at Oklahoma Baptist University, uh, looking at the intersection between philosophy and Christianity. But before this, I was at I was at a community college in Las Vegas for six and a half years. So I just recently moved over to Oklahoma Baptist about six months ago. I don't know how you deal with the hot weather. Like, I'm just thinking like Vegas, Oklahoma. I'm like, I've been to Vegas and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I was there in July and it was so hot. Um, yeah. So props to you. Um, yeah, yeah it's it not crazy. something I really love either. <laughs> but, you know, you, you find ways to enjoy yourself. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it was July. It might have been another month, but it was in the summer and I was just like, oh my gosh, it was so hot. And I was like, mm. I don't want to be in the sun. Um but that's not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the question of like, why would God create the world? Uh, and you're, it's interacting with like Jordan Wesseling and like his views as well. So like getting started, Keith, like how do we even begin to like think about this question of why would God create the world? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, see, when I was a kid, um, a kid, when I was in high school and that person asked me, my, I immediately began to try to think of like the scriptures, right? W statements in the scriptures where God makes a claim about why he created. And to be honest, I guess I didn't know my Bible too well, but I couldn't come up with anything. And so then from there, I switched over to like, well, like, let me just kind of think it through independently of the scriptures and see what I come up with. And still I was stumped. Uh, but um, when I went to college, the, the primary like data point um, for answering this question it was the scriptures. Uh, however, if you, you know, you do the theology and I'm not a theologian, I'm a philosopher, but the way that I see it done is, is that the scriptures, they're one um, source of information, very important, very crucial source. Lots of things that we couldn't know about God were they not revealed to us, um, but it's just one source, right? Um, another source might be church tradition, where uh, we look at what people under the inspiration or under the influence of the Holy Spirit don't want to make it sound equal with scripture there, but under the influence of the Holy Spirit are um, trying to work out a theology. And so we shouldn't neglect those thinkers um, in church history. And what has the church concluded regarding why God created? Um, we could even look at um, some other sources, intuition, reason, and experience. So if we think of our intuitions, we might say, well, like, um, you know, what are some of my bottom level assumptions about um, motivation, about, um, you know, acting out of love, acting out of self-glorification, those sorts of things? Um, what would be appropriate? What would be inappropriate for, say, a perfect being, right? And, and so maybe you have the uh, intuition uh, that it would be inappropriate for a, a perfect being um, to act only for his own self-interest or maybe you have the intuition well no the perfect being would act for his own self-interest that like that's part of what it is to be perfect right so that those are sort of intuitions and and then you use reason uh, applied to those intuitions um, to ask the questions i would, had already been asking like why would this perfect being create um, well if this being is perfect it's going to be good right um, and so wouldn't create in order to primarily in order to like destroy us or something. Um, and, and so um, well, we also see that the, the perfect being has no needs, has no lack. So the perfect being didn't create in order to, you know, um, add to his perfection. It's impossible. And so you, you think through your intuitions as well as like um, applying reason to those intuitions, but you can also uh, look at your experience. One, one thing you might do is like look at the objects in the world around us and ask what's their function. And um, so if you can figure out their function, you can figure out like, well, God created this thing in order to serve this purpose. Okay. So like the function of a, a rabbit or the function of a heart. God created the heart in order to circulate blood throughout the body. Right. That only gets you so far because you might say, well, why did God create hearts? Was it for his own pleasure? Was it um, for the sake of the creature? Uh, and it could be both. 
Um, but another thing about our experience that could really be informative is looking at human relationships. And we see what's morally okay uh, in terms of the motivations people have um, in their actions, okay? Is it morally okay for a human being to act for the sole purpose of their own uh, glory, um, appreciating their talents and that sort of thing? Um, or in order for a, an action that's, say, um, directed at someone else to be morally appropriate, must it be for the sake of that other person, right? So, you, so here are all the sources. You probably didn't want a 15-minute answer, but you know, you've got the scriptures, you've got church tradition, um, intuition, reason, and experience. Um, and Jordan Wessling points out that um, Jesus uh, pointed to our experience to help us understand something of the nature of God. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, when he says, like, you know, uh, even evil people know how to give good gifts to their children. Even evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. So um, how much more so your heavenly father would give good gifts to you, right? So he's, he's at, telling us, like, direct your attention toward what humans do um, for their children and uh, then ask on that basis, you know, what, what, what would God do, right? But it's going to be even more so, right, from the lesser to the greater, um, so Jordan Wessling, he has this methodology where he says we can draw conclusions about God's love by reflecting on ideal human love. See, Jesus, Jesus was talking about evil human beings, right? Um, Jordan Wessling is only asking us to talk about perfect human beings, right? And, and so maybe we could even go further and say, yeah, you know, what, what would even evil human beings um, do even they know how to do good things for their their children, right? So these are the various sources. Now, there's a caution here. You know, uh, we are fallen. We are fallen creatures. Um, and so our intuitions, our experience, our reason, even our interpretation of scripture and the, the men and women from church history, we're all impacted by the fall. Um, everything is marred by sin. And furthermore, we're entrenched in culture. And so everything is going to be sort of, if we're not careful, uh, you know, filtered through the lens of our culture. So, um, yeah, so someone might say, well, my intuition about ideal human love is that ideal human love always affirms, never rebukes. But we see that the scriptures contradict that, right? That, that sometimes love rebukes. And, and so we need to be careful uh, even even in interpreting the scripture, because it can change our um, the way we see the scriptures, right? Uh, the the fact that we're marred, the fact that we're embedded in a culture. So there's a long answer. How do we even begin thinking about why did God create? Yeah, it's definitely a very tricky question, Keith. And I think that your response is like a really like good explanation of that because. When we're thinking about the question of like why would God create the world, it seems like there's a lot of things we have to draw upon to think about it. Yes. Uh, we have to primarily draw upon like scripture, like that's our base. Uh, but it seems like the, you know it's not like there's like oh it's like a two plus two equals four, and you're like there we go. The answer is like two plus two is just a lot right. of math times four. It's not there in scripture, like that's not there for us. So then we right. have to look at things like intuition and our experiences and like philosophical reasoning to really kind of like think about this. So right. I mean it's just a complicated question. So it's just the world that we live in.
So. Right. Uh, to add to this, um, the Bible is not a systematic theology. Mm-hmm. And um, what we've done in church history is we've attempted to take the data from the scriptures and um, form a systematic a systematic doctrine, right? What do the scriptures teach about God, us, and the world? And so, um, you know, you're not going to find a philosophically rigorous statement uh, on the Trinity in in the scriptures, but it's there. The the Trinity is there. You just that's a process of theologies, like gleaning the Trinity from the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. And so, someone who says, "Well, I'm just a, I just believe the Bible." Well, they, they still have to use reason and experience and intuition to get at what the Bible is trying to teach. Mm-hmm. So to start things off here, maybe when we're thinking about this question, uh, your paper is in part or mostly a response to Jordan Wessling um, and his book that he wrote about like divine love, which you, which you had very high, like appraisal of, like even like reading through the paper. Um, Got it right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the parts of the paper that I read, I was just like, wow, he must really love this like Jordan Wesling book. Like, it, um, yeah, he's great. So like, what does he claim about divine love and how is that going to fit into the picture of like the question of why would God create the world? Yeah. Well, let me set the context a little bit more. We've got Jordan Wesling's book by Oxford University Press called Love Divine. And uh, I set up um, sort of symposium. Well, first it was like a book panel at a conference with different um, contributors and speakers. And and so uh, we talked about his book at the conference. And the thing that I focused on in at that conference was um, why did God create? Because Jordan Wesling, he has a chapter on it in the book. And uh, so I, I think like um, I wrote on the topic out of uh, interest in the topic, right? Um, and uh, did the conference and then this book, com- this book panel turned into a symposium for the journal Philosophia Christi. And that was published in 2022. So my, my paper's in there. Um, okay, so what was, what is Jordan Wesling trying to say? Well, his book is broader than just why did God create? This chapter is like one application uh, of his broader sort of thesis. And what he says is that God created primarily out of love for his creatures, out of love for creation. Um, So we need to be able to distinguish between various motivations for acting and realize that sometimes we act for various reasons. And um, sometimes those reasons might be equal, or sometimes we have like a primary motivation with a secondary motivation and et cetera. Okay. And so Jordan Wesling in saying that God primarily was motivated out of love for creation in create in creating the world, he's not denying per se that God created to glorify himself as well. That could be a secondary motivation. Whoops, I was on mute. Um, okay, so that's like Jordan Wessing's claim. One yeah. thing I'm thinking about here, Keith, is like, so we have this question of like you brought up at the, in the beginning about like um, like the like the Calvinist response is almost something that like well God created like just for like His glory. Yeah. Um, and like I'm wondering like how is Wessling's view going to interact with that? And like kind of like what do you think of that, Keith, as we move forward? Good question. So there are two different views that Wessling deals with in the chapter. 
Um, one he calls amorism, and that's the view that I mentioned, that God primarily uh, creates for, his, uh, for the good of the, of the creation. There's glorificationism, which says that God primarily creates for uh, his own glory. And um, so, so Jordan Wesling is uh, opposed to this view, glorificationism, and he puts forward the view amorism. Like I said, though, like he, he has a place for God acting for his own glory. It's just that this is going to be a secondary motivation. There's another complication. The complication is that Jordan Wessling's view is um, what he calls impure amorism, which is only a claim about the main events in salvation history. And that would be, uh, you know, creation, uh, redemption, and that would be the, you know, the culmination of God's kingdom, those sorts of things. He's only talking about God's motivation for those main events in salvation history. And that motivation would be love for the creation, the primary motivation, right? Now for the other events in history, there might be something that's not a main event in salvation history uh, for which God acts primarily for his own glorification. And that would be consistent with, with Wesling's view. And so on that's on the one side, you've got what's called pure and impure amorism, pure amorism being like God only ever acts outside of the Trinity for uh, the sake of love for creation. And impure is God on, God acts in the main events in salvation history uh, for the sake of creation, right? On the other side, you have pure and impure glorificationism. Pure glorificationism is God only ever acts outside of the Trinity for the sake of his own glory. When, when he does act outside of the Trinity, that, that is, he creates, he um, redeems, that sort of thing. Impure glorificationism is that in the main events in salvation history, God only acts for his own glory primarily. And then for other events, it's, it's an open question. And in the foils, this sort of person that Wesling investigates, the view that he investigates is the uh, view of Jonathan Edwards, which I'm not sort of qualified to really get into the details of, of that. But Okay, so maybe I'm curious then, Keith, like, what do you think? Um, it's like you kind of you talked about, like, going to school and like hearing this picture of like God creating like for his glory, like this glorificationism yeah. view. Um, and then we have these other views like um, like a, a more amorphism. How do you say it? What's the proper amorism? Amorism. Yeah. I was way off. Um, but like, what do you think? Like, did God just create us for his glory? Um, are we part of the picture? Are we the whole picture? Like, what are your thoughts here, Keith? Yeah, he did create us for his glory. He did. And and Wesling wouldn't deny that either. Um, that God created for his glory. If you look at Isaiah 43, 25, it says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. He did that for his own sake. And in Psalm 23, he leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. So I think that a person, if they take the biblical data seriously, they can't deny that God acts for his own glory. Now, here's a confusion that I had, I think, at a younger stage, is that when I say 
I act for my own glory or God acts for his own glory. I, I assumed in the back of my mind, like this is the sole reason for acting, right? Or even the primary, primary reason for acting when to say a person acts for their glory is not to say whether they have other motivations or how this action for your glory ranks among your other motivations, right? And so um, God did create and save for his glory, but he also created and saved out of love for us. If you look at John 3, 16, it's very clear. And everybody knows this verse who's familiar with the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave. It's saying that a motivation for God to save is love for the world. And so I don't think that a person, if they take the biblical data seriously, could deny that God created for his glory, or they could deny that God um, created out of love for us, or at least saved out of love for us, right? Um, but you still, I haven't said my view. You still, you're asking my view. Well, okay. I want to recognize, so here I'm, it's talking about me now. Um, I want to recognize like a person could have multiple motivations. God could have multiple motivations to act out of concern for his glory, but also to act out of love for his creation. And, um, I even think that may it may be the case that that um a person could have two different primary motivations that are like sort of equally weighted right uh, the primary motivation would be like the conjunction of the two motivations um though you know i think i don't want to speak for jordan wesling he could correct me if he, he wants i don't think that wesling allows for um more than one primary motivation right um, so it's either love or it's glory. But, you know, he could correct me on that one if he wants. And so what I would say is this. At this point in my thinking, um, I'm going to remain agnostic about what God's primary motivation is for creating. Okay, so was it for glory? Was it for love for his creation? Were they equally weighted? I'm not sure. And so this goes back to that sort of claim that the um, the conversation we had earlier about um, you don't you don't just read off the Bible all the claims about God. And it's as easy as that. Right. Like you have to like compare you have to compare different statements and you have to try to put them together in a consistent way. Also, you have to take context into account. You have to take the occasion for the writing. OK, so. Nobody, um, nobody, except for maybe, I don't know, Romans, the book of Romans, but nobody sat down and said, I'm going to like write a systematic theology here, you know, uh, to the church in Corinth or whatever, you know, like, hey, the church in Corinth, they're going through X, Y, and Z, you know, should we um, in the temple food offered to idols, that sort of thing. What do we do, Paul? Oh, and, and uh, you know, like um, Paul is then addressing that particular issue. And so it's difficult to interpret scripture in a sense, you know, in one sense, it's easy. In another sense, it's difficult because we have to take into account, like, this is an occasion for writing and it wasn't intended as a systematic theology. How can we glean statements that are affirmed, and then construct a theology out of that. And so given those difficulties, I would say like, well, I'm kind of, I, I think I'm agnostic at this point about what God's primary 
motivation is for creating. Though again, to be clear to your viewers, I don't deny that he acted for his glory and I don't deny that, that he acted out of love for creation. That's very clear in the scriptures. Okay, this is really helpful, Keith. So what we're thinking right here is like, so there's a few different views here. Like maybe like God just creates for his glory. Maybe some people think that like, well, it's more like driven towards us. Maybe it's some combination. And your view is like, we should remain like agnostic. Like we just, we don't really know. Um, and you think like, is this like kind of going back to the beginning you referenced about how there's just scripture isn't clear and there's just so many different like parts to the puzzle and like to really like understand like the mind of God, like we just, like, it's just, it's just hard and we don't have the answers. Is that kind of what we're getting at here? Sort of. I, I just still want to make clear that like, I, I think that we can know that God created for his glory. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can know that God created out of love for creation, but it's like, how do these rank? Are they equal ones over the other? Very difficult to say. Mm -hmm. And that's because scripture just kind of isn't clear on it. Like we have these different reasons we can find. It's not a philosophy textbook, right? Mm -hmm. um, as I said, it's it's not even a systematic theology. It's written for certain occasions and and um, to a certain audience. But 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 having said all that, I did come across Ezekiel thirty six. If you're interested in that, um, in, in what that has to say. We're talking about, you know, remember if you recall, like the main events of Jordan, Jordan Wesley talks about the main events in salvation history. And he talks about how God acts primarily for the sake of love in all of the main events of salvation history. Well, I came across Ezekiel 36 and in the context, he's um, Ezekiel is talking about um the Israelites being in exile and how they're going to be brought back to the land. Um, and this, like coming back to the land from exile is part of that salvation history. You can't have the Messiah come if the people are dispersed and then um, basically uh, eliminated through procreation with other nations, right? They need to be preserved for the Messiah to come. And in Ezekiel 36, uh, I believe it's starting with verse 22, God says, therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. There he specifically says, I'm not, I'm not doing this for you, right? You, you guys like, you, you guys defiled my name. You guys disobeyed. You're being exiled because of it. Um, but I'm not going to leave you there because my name is being profaned. I'm going to bring you back for the sake of my name and not for you. Right. So it's it's like a statement of like, I I'm not doing this out of concern for you. I'm doing this out of concern for myself. OK. So 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 that one, I, I'd be interested to hear what Jordan has to say about that. Like like that seems to um, contradict his claim that God only ever acts in the case of the main events of salvation history, um, primarily out of motivation of love for his creation. And, and so that sort of verse would push me more towards, towards uh, glorificationism. Um, 
but it, I mean, it's still, I think, could be consistent with, consistent with this sort of agnosticism, right, about this claim, like, does God only ever act in salvation history for his own glory? Um, that that uh, doesn't answer that question. That verse doesn't answer that question. So one thing I want to talk about that you mentioned a lot in the paper um, is sort of if we think about the idea of like self-glorification, um, yes. like God's creating for this reason, which seems to be like an important part of scripture. Like that's part of the reason um, God creates the world. Uh, one thing that you brought about like to think about here is like the gift giving analogy. So can you talk a little bit about like what that is and like the problem it's trying to pose for um, this view of like God creating like for self-glorification? Yeah, the gift-giving analogy um, is supposed to be, sorry, I'm looking for it in my notes. Um, okay, so I think that we would um, find a person's actions and motivations morally suspect, um, not completely pure, not completely above board, if he gave a gift out of the primary motivation uh, to receive praise from others, to receive attention for himself, right? So I give in the article, the example of um, Harry giving a gift to Sally, and he's not doing it um, primarily for the good of Sally. He's giving the gift primarily so that others can appreciate his generosity or something like that, right? So imagine Zach, uh, for your birthday, your dad gave you a gift just so you could say, like the re primary reason he gave you that gift just so he could, was just so you could say to him and he would hear the words, you're the best dad ever, right? You'd say, well, isn't, isn't giving a gift supposed to be about the other person and you're supposed to be sort of getting out of the way, right? Now I understand that like there could be, um, you know, uh, secondary motivations there. Um, but if your primary secondary motivations of like receiving some attention from that, um, but the if your primary motivation is to receive attention, to be appreciated, that sort of thing, seems like you gave the gift for the wrong reason. And so this analogy might be used against the glorificationist in which um, God gave us a gift, um, creation, life, redemption, uh, glorification of our, of our uh, earthly bodies, and if he did it primarily um, for his own, so, so that he could appreciate himself and that others can appreciate him, does that seem suspect, right? That, that's, that's supposed to be how the gift-giving analogy works. Now, um, I'm, I, I'm, um, I suspect that the gift-giving analogy just doesn't work. Like there's some sort of difference between God and what is proper, what is a proper motivation for God and humans and what is a proper motivation for humans. So just because um, it's improper for me to give a gift out of the primary motivation of bringing attention to myself, it doesn't mean it's improper for God. Um, if there's a difference between God's nature and status and our nature and status that um, is relevant to the analogy. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because I like when you think about this and I was even thinking about uh, I read a book by Richard Foster about humility recently and like the Christian life, like as Christians were called to like think um, not uh, thinking to think about yourself less, like not less of yourself, like Lewis, but thinking about yourself less. Um, and it seems like if you applied that same thing to God, you're like, so wait, God's telling us, like, think about yourself less and then God's like, oh, I want you all just to like think about me always. And you're like, what's going on here? Um there's a, there's a question. And I think this difference yeah. that you're getting, I keep is going to help us like understand that. Yeah. Cause I think like God's in a different position than we are. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The reason that we ought not primarily focus on ourselves is because of our position in creation, in the order of creation. Um, that uh, we are not the ultimate good. We are, we are lesser beings. And so it would actually be, um, self-destructive for us to primarily focus on ourselves and do things for ourselves because we're doing doing things for a lesser good but god isn't even part of creation he is the greatest good right and so for him to draw to him for him to appreciate himself primarily and for him to draw attention to himself um that's proper because um what should he do direct his attention toward lesser goods, right? Um, Or his primary attention to lesser goods. What should he do for us? Direct our attention to lesser goods um, or our primary attention to lesser goods? No. Um, He should direct our attention to the ultimate good. And that is also good for us, right? That we do so. Um, It is fulfilling. Augustine in um, the Confessions, right at the beginning, um, and I'm probably not going to quote this correctly, but he says like something like our... um, you, you have made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. If you read the confessions, like Augustine's journey is this long slog uh, trying to find his satisfaction in things other than God, himself, ideas, um, sex, those sorts of things. And he comes up short, right? And it's only when he focuses primarily on God as his good, that he finds rest for his soul. Okay, so um, God would be doing us a disservice if he said, no, don't look at me. Look at yourself or look at your spouse. Um, now it's okay to look at our spouse. It's okay to look at ourselves, but in the proper order, right? Um, and so our primary attention should be directed towards God. And that will be fulfilling. Yeah. And that's kind of like how you'd respond to the gift giving like uh, analogy and like argument against this is like God is like he is it's different than like us like giving something so that we can like be praised like God being praised is a whole different level since we're dealing with a perfect being like there's nothing greater than God. And for us, like when we come to actually recognize that that's the greatest good that we can experience is recognizing that truth that like God creates for in a sense. Yeah, I think so. And at that point in the paper, I try to use the fact that I find the gift giving gift giving analogy inadequate. I try to use that to question Jordan Wessling's methodology. His methodology, again, if I can find it, is um, that we can draw conclusions about God's love by examining ideal human love. It's not to say that I think that's a bad methodology. It's to say, I think we should be careful, okay? Mm-hmm. And we should um, reflect on our assumptions and whether they're proper assumptions. Re- recall that I said that um, 
someone in our culture today might reflect on what they consider to be ideal human love, right? And what they consider to be ideal human love because they've been swimming in the water of the culture is like that love always affirms and never rebukes. Okay, so if you're taking that as ideal human love and using the methodology to draw conclusions about God's love, you would conclude God's not a God of wrath. God never punishes. God never takes vengeance, right? And yet those things that I just said contradict the scriptures. Okay, so all I'm saying about his um, principle, his methodology is that um, it's it's limited and we need, need to be careful. And, and I think I could be wrong, but I think he... He would agree with that, right? He recognizes all these various sources. I mean, he's a theologian. I'm not. And so he's in a better position to say, but he recognizes all these various sources of information about God and God's world. Here's a question that I'm kind of wondering about, Keith. Um, not on the script, but I'm thinking like um, you're in the philosophy world. And like yeah. if we, if with your position, right, um, we should remain like agnostic because we just don't really know God's primary creator reason for creating the world uh we have these reasons that are revealed through scripture but we just don't like actually know like the main reason if there is one um because if we look at it like our intuitions might be different our experiences how we reason um like we're human and there's no like answer from the stars given to us i wonder like how does this play into like the project of like philosophy more broadly um i know there's people like skeptical theists who would be like all for this like yeah like we're all like we have a very limited window of like knowledge um and we really shouldn't make claims about things we don't have certainty in um or like not maybe not certainty but like a really high like credence towards uh what do you think of this like this is open like are you like are you personally like sympathetic to like these more like broadly skeptical attempts within philosophy like yeah where do you where do you go here yeah, I wonder if someone I wonder if someone is going to watch this and say, I don't think he could do that consistently. I think he'd end up as a skeptic, right? Um, but I am more tentative. I am more tentative about some of the things that philosophy can show us. Um, you know, like, um, I don't require certainty for us to know something. Um, I I know this is like, uh, there's, um, this is squishy here, uh, hand wavy, but um, I would just require reasons that are good enough, <laughs> that are less than certainty in order for us to know things. Uh, but, th but then I, I wonder like, you know, like how much of our intuitions are shaped by uh, our culture? How much of our intuitions are shaped by our up upbringing? Uh, how much of our reasoning ability has been marred by the fall? Uh, those sorts of considerations give me pause. Okay. And so then when I come to a philosophical debate, I look at one side, I look at another and I say, well, they both seem to have good points. I'm, I'm not sure what to think, you know? Um, but, but having said that, like, uh, I, there are all sorts of things I think we can know um, when it comes to philosophy. Okay. And I think philosophers have made a lot of progress. Um yeah, and so Bertrand Russell, even though I disagree with him on a lot of things, he talks about like the progress that has been made in philosophy. Okay. The progress that has been made in philosophy, you don't often see because when progress is made in an area, that area becomes its own discipline that breaks off from philosophy. So like psychology or physics, right? 
And, and so there's a separation. And I think in some sense, this is proper um, that there is a separation as long as we recognize that it's all unified in God's world, right? All of knowledge is unified in God's world, but there are different spheres of, of knowledge, scientific knowledge, philosophical knowledge, psychological knowledge, right? So I guess what I'm saying is like, um, I'm not going to give you anything specific in terms of what I think we can know and what are the standards for, for knowledge. Um, but I can tell you like, Hey, we, we just, we, we don't need anything too grand. We just need like reasons that are good enough, you know, but also like there are lots of things that we can know and philosophy has made progress. Let me give you an example of something that we do know. Um, we, we can know like some of the laws of logic, right? Those things we can be certain about. And those are fundamental um, assumptions. Some of, some of them are fundamental so that they don't depend on anything. Like knowing them doesn't depend on knowing some further truth. They're basic, right? And um, I think that's okay. Uh, or else we couldn't get started on anything. We need to have some of those basic, basic beliefs, right? But I think we can know some of those truths of logic. So that, that would be like an a priori truth, a, a truth of reason, a truth of um, based on just reflection. But also, um, like, here's my phone. I can know that my phone is right here in front of me and it is my phone, right? Like, I'm in good lighting. Uh, I can see it clearly. My, my um, senses are operating. A, a, according to their design, right? Um, like, it's not like I'm trying to see something a mile away. Um, I can feel the phone. All those sorts of things contribute to my, let's say, justification that this is my phone right here. And so I think that's those reasons for thinking this is my phone right here and that I'm holding it in my hand are good enough. And so I know that the phone's right here in my hand. So it's almost like when we're thinking about this, it's really going to come down to like, you're not advocating for a position where we just need to be skeptical of like all human reasoning, like broadly speaking. It's just like in this specific case where we're thinking about the question, like, why did God create the world? It's just that we just don't know because there's just not enough there. Um, but it's yeah, not like, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, so, so specifically about that agnosticism, it's simply a virtue of me looking at the scriptures and not seeing any claims about God's primary motivation for acting, right? And, and that's that's why I stay at a less uh, stay at a position of I'm not sure, because I, I see a, I see a part of the scriptures where God says here's here's why I did this my own glory. I see another part of the scriptures where I where where I see God saying I'm doing this out of love for you. But I'm looking and I don't see any claim like the following. And you wouldn't expect to find it in the scriptures. If, if you found it in the scriptures, you would think someone added this later. You know, it's like when it comes to the main events of salvation history, I only ever act for my own glory as my primary motivation. Right. Like if you saw something like that, you know, it would be like feels like someone put in there what they wanted to put in there, you know, but um, I would love it, Zach. I would love it if one of your listeners said, hey, Keith, you, you did you ever consider this verse? This verse right here 
seems to indicate that God acted primarily for his own glory in all the events of salvation history. Or this verse right here seems to indicate that God um, acted primarily for his own glory. I'm sorry, for, for love of creation in all the main events of salvation history. I would love it. So far, I haven't seen it, um, but I'm ready to be convinced. Yeah, it's just that's very well put. I appreciate that. Um, here's one more question, kind of like drawing back to the beginning. So, like, we have this idea that like God created the world for like His own glory. What does that mean? Like, I, I've heard that a lot, but sometimes I'm like, okay, but like, what does that mean? Uh, yeah, what does it mean, Keith? <laughs> well, I think that uh, Jordan Wesling goes into more detail in the book that I can go into, right? Um, I did this topic as um, the occasion was presented to me and I, I took it. This is not my primary you know, area. However, um, so if God acts um, for his own glory, it could mean like he's acting um, in such a way as to appreciate his own nature and for others to have the opportunity to appreciate his nature as well. And that's perfectly appropriate given God being the greatest being, the perfect being. That seems almost like it's kind of like, it seems like, like if we look at the other idea, like God creating um, the world so that like we can live in it and like love it and experience, it seems like almost like a similar like line of thought, like with this, because like if God is the greatest being, the perfect being, then like him creating out of love would be like almost like it was creating for his own glory. Like he's creating mm -hmm. us for his own glory. And like the way we best experience and know the world is if we came to actually like know God, at least yeah. to me, like the thought came to me that like, well, maybe these two ideas are like pretty similar actually. Yeah. The, um, God can do both, right? Um, create out of love for creation and for his own glory. And those are consistent with each other. Um, and I think there's something very freeing about realizing that God created, um, this world for our enjoyment and um, for our enjoyment of him, right? So, you know, um, the desires that we have aren't bad. Desires are created by God. It's just, do we have them directed towards the right things in the, in, in the right order, right? With God at the top and other things falling underneath according to their according to what's appropriate. I know that's another squishy way of putting it, but um, yeah. And I kind of lost track of your initial question. If you remind me, then I could finish my statement or thought there. I was just thinking like these two views, like they're actually like pretty similar when you think yeah. about it. That's, that was my thought. Okay. But when you look at the, yes. But when you look at the definitions of the, of amorism and glorificationism, you can see that logically, they contradict each other, so they can't both be true. You know, it's one thing to say God is motivated by his own glory and God is motivated by love. Well, then someone could say, yeah, he could be motivated by both. What's the problem? But when you look at the definition of amorism, the definition of glorificationism, we see a contradiction between the two as follows, um, that God's motivation on amorism, in, at least in the events of salvation history, that would be impure amorism. Um, his primary motivation is love and only secondarily or at a third level, 
his own glory, right? Whereas the glorificationist is saying God's primary motivation is glory and only secondarily or whatever, love. And so you can see how those conflict. Um, and, and I think, you know, um, we're not just like splitting hairs here. I think these are important distinctions and, and it's important to investigate these questions to try to find what we think the answer is. So Keith, like any anything else you want to talk about before we start to wrap up here about like why would God create the world or like any questions like related to this? A couple of things. One is that we're talking about love, we're talking about glory. There might be other motivations, right? Like we're just keeping, I think we're just mm -hmm. trying to keep the conversation simple. If you go to um, Jordan Wessling's book, he has a footnote in which he says, go read this article um, and you'll, you'll see like a list of sort of um, proposed motivations for why God created. Um, a second thing is that um, Jordan Wessling in Philosophia Christi in, uh, in that symposium responded to me. So I gave my argument he gave a response and I think he, he has a good response. I'm still trying to, I'm still wondering like whether, whether his objection to me is, is right or whether I can respond to the objection and that, that he was off base. Uh, but what I will affirm is that, you know, he's given me good food for thought there. So if anyone's interested, they could look up that, that um, issue of Philosophia Christi and, read all about it. Uh, Keith, as we start to wrap up here, like how can people follow you, connect with you, things like that? Yeah, you know what? <laughs> I'm I'm not uh, huge on, I guess, putting myself out there online. So <laughs> I think the best they could do is they could become my Facebook friend. That's the only social media I really use. Um, they could look at the, the university website where I have my faculty profile, you, my emails listed there if they want to reach out. It is um, keith.hess at okbu.edu. I, I guess I'm on LinkedIn. And then finally, I have a YouTube channel where I uh, have created some videos, but there, it's, I need to work on it. It's primarily um, for lectures for my students for my classes, and though I, though I make it public so everyone can everyone can watch the videos. I, I have to warn you, they're of a very poor quality. So someone said, are you like, are you speaking from inside a can? You know, when you're, uh, <laughs> when you recorded this video, I said, how dare you? I was inside a barrel. That's funny. So, um, well, I can put the link down below to your YouTube channel. Cause I mean, like, even like I had it pulled up here, like there's all kinds of valuable stuff here. And I'm all about like your production quality it doesn't have to be amazing for it to be good philosophy and just good content in general. Um, yeah, cool. So yeah, Keith, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I'll leave some links down below where people can follow you, connect with you, things like that. And that's that. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, I encourage you to check out Keith's work. I'll leave some links down below. And if you like or know it here in projects and been here for a while, I encourage you to like subscribe, all that fun stuff. And if you value what we do, uh, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash adhere projects. But Keith, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. And there's just so much like fun and interesting stuff to think about. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I, I've enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And have a good one, everyone. And God bless. We'll catch you later.